It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and you're listening to a special episode of Babbage with highlights from the year on our coverage of technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, Senior Editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show, the potential ethical conundrums we face if we start human cloning. Say you get married and your partner dies, and you decide to clone them and you raise them as your child. And then, you know, what if they get to the age of 16 and then you decide to marry them again? Also, we'll look at the researchers trying to fuse computers into the human brain. They have hired a bunch of people from around the country. They hired one guy from Boston who has worked on putting chips in birds' brains to see how they sing. Yep, of course. And we'll look at whether the mysterious signals picked up by an astronomical observatory could really be from space aliens. It's not a silly position to think that there's life elsewhere in the universe. And if you think there's life elsewhere in the universe, maybe there's intelligent life. And if you think there's intelligent life, maybe you might see some signs of it. But first, at the start of this year, we explored the huge strides being made in computer speech interfaces. Our guests were our deputy editor, Tom Standage and Lane Green, and a representative of the computer species known as Alexa, Amazon's Alexa. I asked Lane why computers are getting better at interacting with us. One of the interesting problems is that computers know a lot of different things, but they can't necessarily integrate all the things they know and all the things they can do. For example, Google touted very proudly an achievement where they had taught their system to answer the question, who was president when the Texas Rangers won the World Series? Now, of course, Google knows who all the presidents were in the years they were in office, and they know all the World Series winners. But it was a, it was a sort of a feat to link those two things up and to have that happen naturally and robustly so you could say, what was the population of London when Samuel Johnson wrote his dictionary or some similar question like that recalls two different databases and two different sources of information and brings them together. And that's exactly the kind of thing that computers have a hard time with. Okay, so let's have some examples of questions that Alexa can answer. Alexa, what is the mass of the sun in grams? The sun's mass is 1 decillion, 989 nonillion, 100 octillion, 4 quadrillion, Alexa, stop. Alexa, what's the square root of 289? The square root of 289 is 17. Alexa, what is moral hazard? Moral hazard means economics, the lack of any incentive to guard against a risk when you are protected against it, as by insurance. Alexa, play hits from 1983. Shuffling music from 1983. Wow. Alexa, stop. You know, or play Christmas music or play some jazz. I mean, it's the illusion of being able to synthesize the information. But they're pre-coached. That's the thing. And gradually, these things will get better. But the crucial change that needs to happen is the ability to maintain the context of a conversation. There are one or two cases where the echo can do this. If you ask for something and it's not quite sure, or if you're asking to buy something and it wants confirmation, it will say, did you mean this or do you want to do this? And in that situation, you can say yes or no, and it knows what you're saying yes or no to. But the rest of the time, it is still 
stateless. It is not remembering what you're talking about. So they might not be that great at the art of conversation just yet, but computers are improving at many things. In another episode of Babbage, we had our guest John Bruner, one of the editors at O'Reilly Media. He talked to us about generative adversarial networks. It's a type of machine learning algorithm that is now being used for all kinds of creative output. Here he is walking us through the technology with some of the music written entirely by an artificial intelligence algorithm. My favorite example of generative AI comes from a student named Daniel Johnson. He built a kind of model called a recurrent neural network, and he sort of heaved in a bunch of classical piano compositions and got it to generate new music that resembles the music it was fed. This is my favorite of Daniel Johnson's generative compositions. It is remarkably convincing until you hear it start to repeat a single chord for a really long time. At this point, the algorithm is probably stuck in a local minimum. So every time it plays a note, it asks itself what the next note should be, given the previous note. And the space of solutions that it's considering isn't quite large enough, or its way of searching through that space isn't quite sophisticated enough to come up with a really good solution beyond just repeating the same note again. Eventually, it does manage to climb out of the local minimum and move on. This is a really nice illustration of the current state of generative AI. This neural network is convincingly reproducing the low-level texture of classical music, you know, the scales and arpeggios and so on. But it isn't really grasping the high-level structure of classical music, the ways that you'd expect the melodies and harmonies to develop over the course of the composition. It is the structure that requires a lot of higher-order reasoning, and true creativity requires even higher-order reasoning than that, plus a great deal of context from, you know, the human experience. So this is the gap that's closing fairly quickly right now, but computers will likely never be able to understand and imitate the most complex creative processes of human artists. Now there are other researchers who are working towards ways for humans and computers to compete against each other for creative flair. But earlier this year, the serial technology entrepreneur Elon Musk added another company to his roster, Neuralink. The firm is trying to develop a way to fuse a computer into the human brain. Our technology correspondent Hal Hodson explained that Elon Musk isn't the only one striving towards this goal. So I've been tracking this tech for a little while. One group is in Florida International University in Miami, and their way of doing it is using a special kind of nanoparticle which feels both magnetic and electric force, and they inject billions of these into rats' tails and drag them up through the rat's body using a magnet into its brain, and then they... I know it's grim, right? It's incredible. No one has seen my, my face wince and my eyebrows furrow, but Hal has. Yeah. The amazing thing about this is that it's one of the least invasive ways to put, <laughs> to, to merge computing and brains. And once those nanoparticles are in the rat's brain, they then use modulated magnetic fields to try and send information to and receive information from the rat's brains. That's the hard bit. And is that working? 
Not really. Okay. So what might Neuralink use to do it a little bit more innovatively? We have very little idea about that yet. It's all quite secretive at this point. They have hired a bunch of people from around the country. They hired one guy from Boston who has worked on putting chips in birds' brains to see how they sing. Yep, of course. But the actual technological route, we don't know. I think that's going to be part of the the research. Okay. And what would be the applications of this other than to create sort of cyborgs? Well, the initial applications, the on-ramp, if you like, are medical. So if you have brain damage from a stroke or if you have a degenerative disease like Alzheimer's, you might have problems like a lack of long-term memory or a problem forming long-term memories. And there are ideas out there for creating essentially memory prosthetics that would plug into your hippocampus and allow you to read and write memories from the brain. Advances in cloning technology means that humans copying themselves could be a possibility in the not-too-distant future. Tom Standage spoke to The Economist's healthcare correspondent, Natasha Loader, about some of the ethical considerations we have to deal with if we, or our clone, goes down this path. Say you get married and your partner dies and you decide to clone them and you raise them as your child. And then, you know, what if they get to the age of 16 and then you decide to marry them again? Would famous people sell bits of their DNA in order that you could you could have a Kardashian clone? You know, that would be a way of keeping up the Kardashians, wouldn't it? You know, instead of having your own children, you could have Kardashians. I mean, there's all sorts of sort of mind-boggling things that could come about that I suspect that society would end up regulating the technology very heavily. Doesn't a lot of this, though stem from the science fiction idea that a clone is a sort of identical copy of a person, not just genetically, but in their personality too. And an awful lot of these things, if you clone a child that you like, you're probably, I mean, identical twins may be genetically identical, but their personalities may often differ. So we're kind of presuming that the motivations people would have for cloning assume that they would get the clone of the personality too, which they obviously wouldn't. You know, this is really interesting and it's absolutely correct. Clones are around us all the time. They're called twins. And what we know about them, even when they grow up in the same house with supposedly the same environmental influences and the same clothing, is actually they turn out to be quite different people. You know, if you think about it, if you do clone yourself instead of having a child with someone else, that child is going to be growing up, you know, many decades after you grew up and and so will be different in all kinds of ways. Earlier this year, we took you to the bottom of Challenger Deep, a crevasse that is over 10 kilometers down into the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the ocean in the Pacific. One of our correspondents, Jason Palmer, guided us through this interview with the oceanographer Bob Ziak. His team dropped a sensitive and sturdy ocean microphone known as a hydrophone down into the deep. We recorded several different uh, baleen whale calls. Also recorded a lot of uh, ship noise. Which we sort of expected given that Guam is a, a major commercial shipping hub in the Western Pacific. The hydrophone also picked up a very distinctive sound wave. Uh, the sonar wasn't a very, it didn't happen for a long period of time. It was mostly just a few hours on one day. Uh, it was every minute. But it was a very loud source. So you can imagine that if you're a marine mammal sitting in, you know, the ocean around Challenger Deep, it would be pretty, pretty loud sound and probably cause some disturbance. 
Also, the, it was loud enough that you can hear the sonar is, is essentially reflecting, echoing back and forth over the canyon walls. Uh, so it's a, it a pretty intense sound. Efforts to limit global warming may help prevent the worst possible scenarios for our planet. But sadly, the Arctic will melt regardless. In an earlier episode this year, Jason spoke to one of our correspondents, Miranda Johnson, about whether there are any potential benefits from this gloomy situation. It's a bad scenario. But there are people who think there are good elements to it, right? There's been, there's been this talk of, you know, new shipping lanes opening up and it becoming more feasible to do drilling and so on. How's all that coming together? If we'd had this conversation in 2012, I think perhaps we would have been much more exciting, in particular about the northern sea route, a way for ships to go through northern waters that could cut journey times by about 40%. Now, I think shipping companies are increasingly realising that even in the summer, the Arctic is a pretty dangerous, cold and, and stormy place. And actually, as the ocean up there warms, you get these bits of ice pack that are very dangerous, actually, for ships. And so... If shipping companies want to send their ships up there, they still have to specially reinforce boats. That costs a lot. They can't guarantee that they'll get goods from A to B on time. So the shipping ardour has cooled somewhat. Next up, we may not be the only ones interested in Earth. Earlier this year, some mysterious radio signals from deep space had scientists in a flutter. They were trying to explain what they were hearing. Could they have been from space aliens? Our science correspondent, Tim Cross, explained a few theories that were being bandied about at the time. There are various ones. It might be, for instance, a particularly exotic kind of black hole that forms in a sort of novel way. Another is they might be signals from these things called magnetars, which are neutron stars with extremely powerful magnetic fields. This is all kind of hypothetical, but what's put them in the news recently is a paper from two researchers, one at Harvard and one at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which are not quite the same thing. And their idea is, hey, maybe these are alien spaceships. Okay, so I love it. On what basis do they believe that there's a suitable hypothesis for these to be alien spaceships? When people talk about aliens, it tends to be with a bit of a snigger. And that's sort of fair enough. We've never seen any... All our sort of cultural ideas of what aliens look like are people in bad suits with a bit of latex moulding on their foreheads, speaking funny languages on Star Trek or whatever. But we know now from all the data gathered by telescopes like Kepler that planets are common. We know that planets in the habitable zone are pretty common. We are less sure about the chemistry, but we think, you know, there's no reason to assume that life is particularly tricky or maybe sort of massively unusual. So it's not, it's not a silly position to think that there's life elsewhere in the universe. And if you think there's life elsewhere in the universe, maybe there's intelligent life. And if you think there's intelligent life, maybe you might see some signs of it. Our final highlight of the year so far brings us right back down to Earth. An innovative piece of technology aims to add more data and analysis to the time-honored sport of cricket. Our science correspondent, Paul Marks, explained the various aspects of the game which could be improved with data. Players will be able to use the data to improve their game. People who are having trouble with their game can look at the numbers and see, you know, maybe I'm not doing this, maybe I'm not lifting the bat right, maybe I'm not swinging it right. It's going to be a consumer product as well as something for tournaments. It's going to be a $150 sensor anyone could put on a bat. It will talk to an app on your phone and give you the very same data. 
So spectators win and players win. What about the sports commentators that are known for their pith and insight? Yeah, well, they're going to have something else to talk about besides the cake that people are bringing them up to the commentary box. There'll be six new types of parameter they can talk about, about the batsman, and there'll be about four new ways they can describe the pitch from the drone that scans the wicket. So uh, it's going to give them a whole lot more to talk about. Dickie Bird is pacing up and down, looking as if he's dropped something. Yes, Beardus? No, no, you've got your glasses up. Uh, Field glasses. I thought you were raising your microphone to say something. 58 for three on the board. That's all from this special episode of Babbage. We'll be back next week with more insights into the world of science and technology. Don't forget that if you like the podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It matters. And if you don't like our podcast, well, thank you at least for listening all the way through. If you like our journalism, please do subscribe to The Economist. You can go to subscription.economist.com. Tell everyone Ken sent you. And in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.